After more than 17 months of negotiations between state and federal health officials, the Hochul administration got the okay in January from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to implement a health care spending plan worth about $7.5 billion over three years. The approved plan, known as an 1115 Medicaid waiver, has the potential to promote health equity for the more than 7 million New Yorkers covered by the state's Medicaid program. For more on how the state plans to spend federal funds covered by this waiver and to help us understand the waiver process itself. We're joined in the Capitol Press Room studio by Lisa Wickens-Altieri, founder and president of Capital Health Consulting. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. Thank you, David, for having me. Well, for starters, why does the state need to get approval from Washington, D.C. to spend Medicaid dollars? I thought that the idea is it's a federal program, but states are given a wide latitude on how they choose to uh, administer it. There is a 1864 agreement with states to the federal government for the utilization and administration of Medicaid. Unfortunately, it's not as broad as you would think. Okay. So waivers, they started coming into vogue, I would say, in the 1990s, where the states were working with the government where they could utilize the dollars a little bit differently to pilot mm -hmm. or demonstrate where they could improve outcomes through doing a few different things, utilizing some of the different policies and some of their hypothesis on how they could improve care, sometimes expand services. And there's some themes that they've been doing since the 1990s. Well, I guess in the last three decades, have there been any notable uh, Medicaid waivers secured by the state? I think the biggest Medicaid waiver that I'm familiar with was the Medicaid redesign team, mm -hmm. which was actually you know, approved in 2011, which was to improve quality and save dollars. Uh, but continue to actually save dollars. And, and one of the things, one of the biggest goals was to make sure we were spending 75% of the Medicaid dollars on 20% of the individuals. So we're, those were the folks that they would call the high utilizers that were in and out. And so that was the first focus. How can we utilize Medicaid dollars differently to make sure you get the right care at the right time the right price with quality outcomes. Now, do new governors, when they come in, do they typically pursue a Medicaid waiver so that they can put their own stamp on how they're spending Medicaid dollars, or is it more of a case-by-case -case basis? I do think there's a consistency in the themes of Medicaid waivers. Mm -hmm. You can't just start a Medicaid waiver on a separate program because a lot of this is culturally grounded in how you administer Medicaid. Okay. So you can't turn the ship, so to speak, that quickly. So I think maybe they would have a different theme or themes, but it's still going to have to be more of a contiguous, continual process so that you can actually make a difference. And for context, when we think about Medicaid program, this latest waiver is worth about $7.5 billion over three years. But in terms of Medicaid spending by New York, this has to be, what, a, a tiny drop in the bucket relatively? It's substantial where, you know, we get a certain amount of match for the dollars that okay. we utilize from the federal government. So in some of these cases, you get 50% match on a Medicaid dollar from the feds. So that can be substantial. And them allowing you to shift how you're administering it and try to come up with some hypothesis and demonstrations to change outcomes 
is a big thing. So the governor framed this waiver amendment as quote unquote groundbreaking in terms of its effect on the state's health care system. Is there anything about this plan that is particularly significant? Because as you mentioned, waivers are, are not a new thing in Albany. And reading a, a little bit about this one, there's some references to this kind of being uh, a continuation of previous waivers, but maybe with a slight twist. So I think there's two things that make, I think that's really important about this waiver. The one thing is we've gone through COVID. We knew going in to these years that there was going to be a workforce shortage, for especially in healthcare. We knew that. There's a focus in this waiver to actually address that. The other thing is I mentioned that the Medicaid redesign team, one of the first things they focused on were those high utilizers of services that gobbled up 75% of our Medicaid funds but there was only 20% of the overall Medicaid population without stating who it was, right? So there's more focus on those social determinants of health or those other parts of people's lives that will affect their health outcomes. For instance, food, housing, job security, if there's any justice or criminal justice you know, problems in their background. Those types of social issues do affect healthcare outcomes. And so I believe it's really kind of fine-tuning some of the items that have been maybe included in the waivers, but not as specific as maybe they're spoken to in this waiver. Well, yeah, I read in one outlet that the state is potentially looking to spend more than $3 billion for these health-related social needs services, including housing, air conditioners, temporary home modifications, nutrition, food. So it seems like these potentially could be preventative measures that save money down the line as well? You know, you think about it as preventative, mm -hmm. but if you don't have a place to go to sleep or you don't have a place to cook your food, then you're not going to care about how you're feeling because you don't have the basic needs. And so people without basic needs can't focus on their health needs or their health priorities. So if they're diabetic, it's going to be critical that they're eating correctly, that they're exercising. But if you don't have a house, so it's not necessarily preventative. It's really more of the basic. So it includes six months housing after someone gets out of mental health institution or they have, you know, some more inpatient needs. So it gives them that ability to actually start a good plan from where they are and be in a safe environment and have some of those basic needs met. It also includes the housing, but funds for good food and for some of the other needs that they have. Well, it seems like those types of investments, though, can limit a person's long-term health care bill, like if you do have housing after uh, a hospital stay or if you are giving yourself nutritional food, then the potential health needs that might arise in the future could be diminished. So is there potential that mm -hmm. these Medicaid investments could save us Medicaid costs on the back end? Good point. Yes, they could. So if someone was actually getting new skills, mm -hmm. 
yes, it could help them. So another area that you mentioned was the idea of the workforce. And even prior to the arrival of the pandemic, we had a healthcare workforce shortage that was really just exacerbated by the arrival of COVID-19. So is there anything in this plan that stands out to you in terms of addressing the workforce shortage? Because what we've seen mostly over the last couple of years has been one-time bonuses, some sort of help for, say, uh, student loan forgiveness, anything that deviates from that in a meaningful way, or is it kind of more of the same? There's no easy answer for this. I'm a registered nurse, so I'm out there struggling with other folks to get people in. But if there was an ability for me to go to finish med school and get my loan covered, And because I was actually going to be going in psychiatry or addiction medicine or obstetrics, I probably would have been able to finish Mm -hmm. and gone to med school. Instead, I had to go to nursing school, which I'm very, very thankful for. But I think that will help in when we're trying to get people to go into those, especially into some of these special areas. I mean, we need more psychiatrists. The other thing is that there is mention in here without the the explicit details on how it's going to be implemented, but your career pathway training. You know, you get out of school, and are you going to excel and be a leader or a teacher in the area that you went to school for? There's a mention here of that type of training and dollars to go for that type of training and education and assistance. So that, I think, will also help keep people where maybe they would go elsewhere to look for a different career. Um, You know, right now, anything we could try to do to start to listen to what nurses and physicians need, I think this is a good start. And in terms of those special areas, one of the ones that stood out to me was up to $100,000 for dentists who make, uh, I believe, a four-year commitment to serve uh, a Medicaid population in New York. Um, Turning to another area that uh, came up a a lot during the health portion of the legislative budget hearing. Uh, There's money in here for the safety and distressed hospitals. What sort of changes could we see as a result of these investments? It looks like there's going to be certain uh, rates of increase for some of this, but there's also going to be value-based purchasing. There's some new models that they're talking about, um, which is like a, a budget model for the uh, the safety net hospitals. I don't necessarily know if I know the details mm-hmm. on that, but I do believe that's something that those terms are a little different, not value-based. We've heard about value-based before, but the budget model for those safety net hospitals may be something that's new. One of the things that stood out to me during the conversation about funding for facilities as part of the waiver was that lawmakers are already beginning to have concerns about who has eligibility uh, under this. So are there likely to be facilities who are going to find themselves uh, on the outside uh, looking in in terms of the disbursement of this money? Yes. <laughs> and are there gonna There's going to definitely. How's that going to go over? Um, well, you'll have to see who's fighting about it and how they're, if they're going to try to see if they can change anything or carve themselves into something else different. And after a quick break, we'll continue our discussion about a recent federal waiver authorized by the Biden administration, which is designed to give the Hochul administration additional flexibility for spending $7.5 billion over the next three years. Our guest is Lisa Wickens-Altieri, founder and president of Capital Health Consulting.
Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. For listeners just joining us, we're continuing our discussion about a recent waiver obtained by the Hochul administration from the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which will give the state additional flexibility for spending about $7.5 billion in Medicaid funding over the next three years. Our guest is Lisa Wickens-Altieri, founder and president of Capital Health Consulting. Well, you mentioned this idea about potential changes to the administration of the waiver. Should we think of this approval that was granted in January as the final word on this $7 billion pot of money that the state is going to spend over three years? Or is there a more fluid process where the state could have some give and take with uh, federal health officials as we begin to implement it? One of the things I can say when I worked in the Department of Health was that there was a really good relationship between Region 2, CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, and the Department of Health. This has been approved. The original waiver was put in in 2022, and it wasn't approved. So they've been probably working together, I'm hoping, to come up with something. I think what I've read so far, what you've seen, and what they've published is pretty much probably going to happen. The details of that, some of those we don't have, will probably change a little bit and there might be conversations. There is a mention too at one section of the waiver that there also could be more to come, so to speak, in regards to reimbursement. So we'll have to see what happens. But in general, I think what they've been published is pretty set. Well, as New York begins to spend this money under the waiver, is it possible that if we do deviate from what was approved in a meaningful way that federal officials might say, no, we're not covering that or you owe us some of this money back? Because I feel like I've heard that over the last couple of years where we're sometimes like, oh, boy, we got a real budget problem because uh, the feds don't like how we've been spending money. There's always that potential. But there's that potential in other areas, too, not just in the waiver. Okay. So that, you know, just there's lots of different contracts and dollars that come out for pharmaceuticals and from different types of, you know, things from the federal government. You have to follow the rules. You have to make sure, you know, you're staying within the parameters that they've developed that you've already agreed to as part of like a, quote, contract. So I think there's always that potential. There's a lot of questions. This is a very dense waiver. As I'm going through it, I'm trying to learn how they're applying old acronyms to new acronyms and what is it referring to? Is it the same thing or is it different? Or are they trying to actually highlight a specific population or a theme differently? So I go through this several different times with more questions than I have answers. Well, you mentioned the fact that what's old can be new again. And a complaint that we've heard about the predecessor to this current waiver was that funding intended to trickle down through hospital systems didn't necessarily flow very smoothly, including to community-based organizations. Is there a reason to believe that that problem won't repeat itself? Well, I think... I think the legislators, I think the governor, I think the people within the Department of Health are very, very aware of all those complaints. And there is mention of, we'll say, a layer in this waiver that's going to be part of that process managing to make sure, I would say, like things are moving in the right direction and there's the right 
discussions where they're supposed to be. So it has to go down to the CBOs, the community behavioral organizations. Mm -hmm. It needs to get to the communities where it's going to be touching the lives of those patients that are definitely supposed to be the most affected by this. You know, there's no guarantees in this, but I think the state and everyone else is looking at this for something to be different, that those dollars don't stay at the hospital level, that they get to where they're going to actually make some changes. Well, sticking with the flow of money, I guess, is there a possibility that the effects of this investment and how New York is spending these dollars could trickle up? And by that, I mean, this is money that's supposed to target the Medicaid population in New York, but does it impact other New Yorkers who have, say, commercial insurance? Should they expect that the quality or access to care that they receive will change if the Medicaid experience is improved? That's a very good question. Thank you for that one. A lot of times commercial insurances do different do things differently, but they always look at what the rate is that Medicare and Medicaid spends. And once there's a good idea or something is demonstrated that works, mm-hmm. of course the commercial insurers can pick it up. If there's something that we uncover doing this waiver that is like an aha moment, well, that didn't work, then I think you'll see the commercial insurers act differently as well. One of the most important pieces of this is that we have a lot of individuals in our state that aren't receiving dental care. They can't Medicaid, you know, if they're a Medicaid recipient, it's really hard to find a dentist that will take Medicaid. Same thing for behavioral health and substance use disorders, right? So I do think this demonstrates processes and policy that can affect all insurers and all payers. So we are in the middle of a presidential election year. and Right now, the White House is controlled by Democrats. If a Republican is president in 2025, does that impact the administration of this waiver in any way? Could federal health officials say, that was the agreement you had with the previous guy. We're going to take this back. We don't like some of the proposals you have here. Another good question. That one's probably above my head, but I will tell you this. Administrations, both at the federal and the state level, their themes on what they want to focus on do change. But there's no question that the country is looking at these themes. And right now, as of January 23rd, there were 60-some-odd waivers approved in 47 states across the country. And they all fall into very similar buckets. I don't see those buckets as changing and would have changed previous to this, this federal administration because these were areas of concern long before then. Well, finally, I want to come back to this idea you mentioned that's in the plan, this idea of value-based payment strategies and alignment across both Medicaid and Medicare. How big of a deal should we think about, you know, the value-based payment structure? Is this a meaningful way to think about the delivery of health care? Is it dramatically different from what we're seeing right now? Yes. And why? So when you go to purchase something and you purchase a meal and it's horrible and the waitress is really, really bad, do you want to pay? Do you want to actually give a good tip? I don't, but I do because of some sort of uh, white-collar guilt, I feel. Oh, okay. Well, that's good for you. Um, but, but that's really what it's saying. Okay. It's like we're wanna, we want to actually get the most for our dollars. We want to get good value outcomes. And there's ways to do it where you're smart and you're efficient. 
that's really what this has been. We've been talking about value-based purchasing for five years plus, and we really haven't seen it take off the way I thought we were going to. When I was back writing grant applications for value-based purchasing happening at all levels of care, Mm -hmm. not just at the hospital level, but at ambulatory surgery centers, we're doing it at nursing homes. Why can't we apply it? Why can't there be something that we expect for our dollar? Well, does that then create a system of sort of rewarding the already good providers who might have things really working in their favor and then the healthcare providers who might, say, serve a a poorer clientele or or not attract uh, the best doctors and healthcare staff because they don't have enough money? They sort of get caught in in this cycle where they just get worse and worse as the the value-based payment structure you know, doesn't reward them? Well, I don't know if we're at the point where everyone has to be 100% into value-based. Mm-hmm. This has been discussed for years. We haven't seen this implemented across the board. I think what it does do is that you're not in healthcare to do poor care. People that actually want to thrive and succeed in healthcare delivery and health and human services needs to actually take all of this into consideration and look at this as a way that they're going to be sustainable. So instead of saying, well, I'm not going to do it and I'll just kind of like, we'll get less than great care for the, for the people that I'm seeing, it's more, I want to be around and I need to start to apply some of these processes and practices so that I am going to be sustainable going forward. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We've been speaking with Lisa Wickens-Altiri. She's the founder and president of Capital Health Consulting. Lisa, thanks for visiting us, and I hope we can pick your brain over the next three years as we implement this waiver. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Capital Press Room a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.